And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you've given to us the Bible, this extraordinary book, 66 books, yet one, 40 and more human authors, yet one author, over two million words, and yet one word, the word made flesh and dwelling amongst us. We thank you that your word is given by inspiration, that you breathed it out. You caused it to be written for our good, for our salvation, for our growth in grace to teach us and instruct us. So, Father, we pray now this morning that as we are a needy people, we are prone to wonder. Our hearts too often grow cold. We find we do things we ought not to do and leave undone things we ought to do. And we pray that you would instruct us afresh by your Spirit. And so come, we pray, open your word to us. May your word find a place to reside within our hearts today that we might love it more than our necessary food. Fill us with a glimpse of the glory and the greatness of your Son, our Lord Jesus. And it's for his sake we ask these things. And in his name, amen. An old farmer went to the city on one weekend and attended the big city church. He came home and his wife asked him how it was. Well, he said it was good. They did something different, however. They sang praise choruses instead of hymns. Praise choruses, said his wife, what are those? Oh, they're okay. They are sort of like hymns, only different, said the farmer. Well, what's the difference, asked his wife. The farmer said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a hymn. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, 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 the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the black and white cows, the cows, 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 are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, the corn, corn, corn. Then if I were to repeat the whole thing two or three times, well, that would be a praise course. As luck would have it, the exact same Sunday, a young new Christian from the city church attended a small town church. He came home and his wife asked how it was. Well, said the young man, it was good. There was something different, however. They sang hymns instead of praise courses. Hymns, said his wife, what are those? Well, they're okay. They're sort of like praise courses, only different. Well, what's the difference, asked his wife. The young man said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a regular song. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, O Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry. Incline thine ear to the words of my mouth. Turn thou thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, inimitable, glorious truth. For the way of the animals, who can explain? 
There in their heads is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's son or his reign, or less from the mild, tempting corn they are fenced. Yea, those cows in proud bovine rebellious delight have broken free their shackles, their worn pens eschewed. Then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all might chili wax sweet corn have chewed. <laughs> so look to that bright shining day by and by where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn, where no vicious animal makes my soul cry and I no longer see those foul cows in the corn. Then if I were to only do verses one, three, and four and do a key change on the last verse, well, that would be a hymn. Whether it's a praise chorus or a hymn, whether it's an anthem or an amen, whenever God's people get together, there is usually a desire to sing. And yet so often what God intends to be a means of unity in the church serves as the greatest point of division. Now much ink has been spilled about the worship wars of the past decades. Traditional versus contemporary, hymns versus choruses, high church versus low church, and so on. But we believe there is a greater war to fight. When Martin Luther was preaching, writing, and leading the Protestant Reformation in Wittenberg, the primacy he placed on God's word caused people to rethink almost everything to do with their worship patterns. This included statues of saints or other objects of worship, some overly zealous mobs inflamed with resentments against Roman Catholic leaders began to roam from church to church trying to destroy all such objects of veneration. And they unleashed a torrent of disorderly violence that Luther worked vigorously to stop. He preached very plainly on how the details of the reformation of public worship should be done. He said, in effect, take care of the idols of the heart, and the idols on the wall will take care of themselves. You see, the recovery of the gospel in the reformation was ultimately a worship war. A war against the idols. A war for the pure worship of God. And so we must worship God according to God's word so that we might bring God glory. Well, here's the big idea that I want us to think about this morning. The main point of our passage. Worship Christ, who is your life, in life together and all of life. Now, if you look at the passage with me for a moment, I want to highlight the way these three verses are structured and put together. In each verse, you will find an exhortation to do something. Christ is explicitly mentioned and we're called to be thankful. Do you see those elements in these verses? Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with thankfulness. Verse 17, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. So there's the same structure in each. In verse 15, as we're going to see, Paul's focus really is on the unity of the church and the peace of Christ as the means by which we preserve our unity. In verse 16, he's focused on ministry, that we not only be passive receivers and consumers of the word, but that we teach actively and admonish one another, that we become word ministers ourselves, and as we do, the word of Christ will dwell among us richly. And in verse 17, he's focused on doxology. Let everything be done in the name, that is, for the sake and for the glory of the Lord Jesus. So unity, ministry, doxology. And all the way through, at every point, he says all of this is to be done from a grateful heart. So these are the priorities Paul has given us to help us make progress as he calls us to put sin to death and to put on righteousness, to put off the old life and to put on the new life of Christ-likeness. 
And we're simply going to work through each of them in turn. The peace of Christ to secure our unity. The word of Christ to shape our ministry. And the name of Christ to stimulate our doxology. Let's think about the first of those priorities in verse 15. The peace of Christ to secure our unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Notice four marks of this peace. First, it is a group peace. The focus here is on the unity of the church. Paul's talked about the church several times in Colossians as the body of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 18, again in chapter 1, verse 24. And again, even more explicitly, in the need uh, in the context of the need for unity in the church, chapter 2, verse 19. This theme has come up again and again as a major concern. We saw in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 11, Paul reminded them that in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. We saw him in verses 12 through 14, urging gentleness and humility and patience and forgiving one another. We saw that one another language that is very much at the front of Paul's concern for the Colossians. You see, at Colossae, false teaching had begun to cause division and fractions, and the church was straining at its unity. The seams were beginning to split. Relationships were tearing apart. And so Paul is very much concerned that we see that our new life in Christ is never divisive. It's never contentions. It's a community project. It's something we pursue together. And we need the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts if we are to secure our unity and make progress in likeness to Jesus. So he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The your there is plural. The peace of Christ is something we share. We have it in common. It's ours together. We have been called by God, by his grace, in one body, as unified members of Christ's body, the church. The peace of Christ that secures our unity is a group peace. It is also a governing peace. The word for rule, actually we've, we've met a version of this word back in chapter 2, verse 18, where Paul uses it as condemn or disqualify, right? Let no one disqualify you. Both the word that's used here and the word that's from the same root earlier in chapter 2, both originally have the sense of a referee, an umpire in a sporting event that might rule something out of bounds, that might call foul in the middle of the game according to the rules. And so the peace of Christ is the referee in your heart that rules certain behaviors out of bounds, that calls foul when needed, that speaks to your conscience, to your heart, to call you to preserve your unity. Third, it's a, it's a gospel peace. Listen, when you became a Christian, you were an enemy of God. He was hostile to you because of your sin and your rebellion against him. And because of the cross of Christ, you were reconciled to God so that instead of enmity with God, you were adopted into his family. You were reconciled to him. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this objective peace in chapter 1, verse 18. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is an objective peace reality not a felt reality praise God if you're a Christian today you have peace with God in the courts of heaven whether you feel it or not it's an objective fact peace with God but not only do you receive peace with God you have peace that comes from God Paul opened the letter 
grace to you and peace from God our Father. Peace to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that passes all understanding. It comes in the wake of having your conscience cleansed by the blood of Christ from dead works to serve the living and true God. It comes as you realize you were once an orphan, but now you're an adopted child of the great King. And this is your family, and these are your people. The Church of Christ is your family. The Word of Christ is your daily bread. The glory of Christ is your great purpose. And now because of this, you have peace from God and peace in your heart to guard and play referee. And I think we all understand a bit how this works. When our relationships are under pressure, we find ourselves frustrated with one another. When we know we've sinned against a brother or a sister, our peace is shattered. The inner referee is crying, foul. And I suspect for some of us today, this is a timely word. What do you do when your conscience stings and you know you're breaking fellowship with a brother or sister for whom Christ died? You remember the words of Jesus, to leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother. Paul said just a few verses earlier, forgive one another just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. The peace of Christ is the referee who works in our hearts. It's, it's the gift of Jesus to secure and preserve our unity, alerting us to our need to pursue one another, to bear with one another in patience, to forgive one another that love might cover over a multitude of sins and help us preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the fourth, it is a grateful peace. Paul adds this command, and be thankful. Your gratitude is one of the great engines of Christian unity. Gratitude is the enemy of entitlement. A grateful heart is not an entitled heart. Gratitude is the confession of our utter bankruptcy and the wonder we feel at Christ's great mercy. That's gratitude. Be thankful, Paul says, when the peace of Christ plays referee in your heart, stopping you from fracturing your unity together. So first, Paul says, we need the peace of Christ to rule, to be referee in our hearts, that our unity might be secured, that in the fellowship of the church, we might grow in grace and in likeness to Christ together. Well, then secondly, verse 16, we need the word of Christ to shape our ministry. We'll spend most of our time here. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Here Paul sets forth a vision of our life together. Here's a picture of the worshiping church. Now in one sense, all of life is worship, as Paul writes in the very next verse. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All of life is intended to be an act of worship. The essence of worship is a continual, heartfelt delight in God, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But here, Paul focuses on what worship looks like when God's people gather together as a local church. And so we need to ask, what is biblical corporate worship? How does the word shape our worship when the corpus, the body of Christ, gathers together. And I want us to draw out six biblical priorities of God-pleasing corporate worship from verse 16. This is Paul's philosophy of ministry, if you will. This is God's wisdom 
for our worship. And first, it should be Bible-saturated. Notice that Paul says to let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. Corporate worship should not merely be Bible-based. It should be Bible-saturated. You know, so many churches have so little Bible in their services. And if you ask, why isn't there more Bible? They'll say, oh, the Bible is our foundation. It's foundational to all we do. But you know where they put foundations? Under their house, where you can't see it. It's there for support, but otherwise out of sight. But if the Bible is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, then the word should dwell in the whole house. It should saturate every room. It ought to be evident that everything we do in our worship is rooted in Scripture and in response to Scripture. God's word ought to be prominent and pervasive. Now, there are two schools of thought historically regarding what we ought to do when we gather together, together for worship. Churches historically have adhered either to what's called the normative principle or the regulative principle. The normative principle says churches are free to practice any element of worship that's not explicitly forbidden in Scripture. And so, for example, dramatic skits and interpretive dances would be a regular accepted element of corporate worship. And in contrast, the regulative principle states that churches are only free to practice those elements of worship that are explicitly commanded in the Bible. And those have been helpfully identified as read the Bible, preach the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, and see or picture the Bible in the ordinances. And I commend to you that that is the model that we ought to follow. Now, while we do recognize those essential elements, Scripture allows for flexible forms for these elements. Nowhere does Scripture command or forbid the use of microphones or PowerPoints in preaching or singing or the use of printed music or instruments. You know, a slavish adherence to the regulative principle might forbid the use of mis- musical instruments, require everyone to sing a cappella, as the Church of Christ tradition follows. And that seems to me excessive. But if the Bible regulates our worship, and if the Bible commands us to read, preach, and sing the Bible, then there ought to be two defining sounds in the life of our local church. The teaching of the Word of God and the singing of the people of God. Now, what is teaching? It's the imparting of spiritual truth. And in this way, the body of Christ is edified or built up. Teaching is the imparting of building blocks for your soul so that the city of truth can be built up inside of you. It's intrinsic to the Great Commission. Right? Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching is at the center of the Great Commission. We need to teach the Word of God fully. And then Paul says, admonishing. This is the negative side of the ministry of the Word. It's, it's warning somebody. With the, with the wisdom that God's given, you say, brother, you're in trouble. Sister, you need to stop doing that. This is dangerous. All right, this is, the Greek word is nutheteo, the word for admonishment. It's at the core of nuthetic or biblical counseling, warning each other based on the Word of God. So how will the word of Christ dwell among us richly? Certainly, there's the public ministry of the word, what we're doing right now. Preaching is at the center of who we are as a church because we know we are ignorant and sinful. 
We need our holy and wise God to speak to us. And so in preaching, we listen to him. And so preaching must be the central act of corporate worship. But even beyond the sermon, the fact that others also hear what we declare and speak to God in corporate worship should influence what we choose to declare and speak. What we say, sing, pray, and preach publicly ought to be clear and accurate so that we are teaching and admonishing the church body truly. But there's a personal ministry of the word as well. And we're not simply to be consumers of the word. We're called, each of us individually, to be ministers of the word. There's a sense in which all of us are to speak the word to one another. Not just hearing the word Sunday by Sunday, but proclaiming the word throughout the week, sharing the word among us and from us to the world around us. But did you notice that Paul has a particular context in mind in which this mutual teaching and admonition will take place? Look at verse 16 again. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So when we gather to worship and when we sing God's praise, we're doing two things simultaneously. We're giving praise to God, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. God, remember, is the primary object of our worship, not ourselves. There's an irreducible Godwardness to Christian worship, a vertical dimension that's always present and prominent. But as we sing praises to God with thankfulness in our hearts, there's something else going on. There's a horizontal dimension to our worship. We're teaching and admonishing one another as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As the psalms of the Bible and the songs of the faith, as the Spirit himself has protected and provided and preserved them for us across the ages, as we sing them together, we're doing more than simply celebrating God's grace in our lives. We're also teaching each other. We're being word ministers to one another. And that has some implications, right? Songs teach. Singing together is part of the teaching ministry of the word. Now, Paul mentions psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms refers very clearly to the original songbook of the church, the Psalter. We should still sing the psalms today. Isaac Watts is an example of someone who wrote metrical psalms in English that based on the Psalter. Hymns likely refers to Christian compositions written during the time of the early church. We have an example of one of those hymns in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Another one would be Philippians 2, 6 through 11. These are early church hymns. Spiritual songs is a bit harder to pin down. It may refer to spontaneous songs prompted by the Holy Spirit, or it may refer to singing in the power of the Holy Spirit. But in any case, right, you have a variety. We should be open to singing different types of songs. We sing here at First Baptist a mix of old and new hymns, psalms, and songs based on other scriptures, contemporary courses, gospel songs, spirituals, and so on. Whatever form the music takes, we want our singing to help one another love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because the command to sing is addressed to the whole congregation, right, we emphasize congregational singing. It's permissible and good at times to have musical offerings sung by solos, duets, trios, quartets, and other ensembles. But we can never say, you know what would really take our music ministry to the next level is if we had a choir. No, when you join the church, you join the choir. 
Right? If all we have is the whole congregation singing together, then we have all we need. You don't need anything else in a faithful music ministry other than God's people singing biblical songs together with grateful hearts. Now allow me to be direct for a moment. Singing the praise of God is not an optional thing for those of you who don't think you sound good. Right? You don't get to opt out of this. It's a command for every one of God's people. If you have a voice, you're to use it for his praise. The human voice is the greatest instrument that God ever created. Use yours. And I need to see you singing. And you need me to, you need to see me singing. We need to give ourselves with enthusiasm to the praise of God. And when we do, we teach each other. We admonish one another. We encourage one another. Parents, what are you teaching to your kids when they look over and see you silent when everyone else is singing? These might say, well, I don't sound so good. I don't have a great singing voice. Well, you don't have to sound good. Just open your mouth, give praise to God, and make a joyful noise to the Lord. And church, I've seen it in your faces. As you sing these rich words and the truth begins to strike home, it's a profound encouragement to me to look out and see you. We are to be mindful of one another in the praise of God because it's not just about you forgetting everyone else and trying to focus on Jesus, right? We're, we're to sing together. I'd encourage you to keep your eyes open most of the time and look around at one another as you sing. You know, John Wesley wrote some directions for singing. He wrote this, Sing all. See that you join the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up and you will find a blessing. Sing lustily or passionately and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, no more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. Sing modestly. Do not bow so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation that you may not destroy the harmony but strive to unite your voices together so as to make one melodious sound. Sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound, but offered to God continually, so shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve here and reward when he cometh in the clouds of heaven. Well, that's the first priority. Second, God-focused. Our main purpose in worship is to glorify God and delight ourselves in Him. This is God's fundamental concern throughout Scripture. Before the universe came into being, God enjoyed everlasting fellowship within the persons of the Trinity. He has no needs, nor was He deficient in any way. And out of the overflow of His perfect happiness through endless ages... God created everything that exists and continues to sustain creation by his word. All things are from him and through him and to him. All things exist for his pleasure and to magnify his supreme worth. We exist to bring God glory by demonstrating the greatness of his person. This is not because God needs our praise. His glory shone forth in splendor long before we came to be. And we can either add to it nor subtract from it. And yet, as mirrors reflecting the rays of the sun show the magnificence of the sun itself, so may we, by word and deed, show forth the glory of our God. And so the the rhythm 
of godly worship is revelation and response. God cannot be known apart from his revelation. Thankfully, graciously, God has revealed himself throughout his created world and more specifically in his word. And this revelation provokes our response. Worship is our necessary response to the supreme worth of God. Upon seeing who he is and what he's done, we respond in faith in Christ, love for the saints, service by his spirit, wonder at mercy, grief in loss, sorrow over sin, sobriety regarding judgment, joy for forgiveness, celebration of atonement, boldness to approach the throne of grace, and joy in the hope of heaven. And so God reveals, we respond, God unfolds himself to us by his word, and we are blown away by it. We're moved by what we see, and we break out in song. We celebrate what the Lord has done. And our worship together is an experience of speaking to God through singing and prayers, and of hearing God speak to us through Bible reading and preaching. And as we experience these rhythms of grace together, our hearts are strengthened to serve him. Now, in aiming for God-focused worship, there's two ditches that we have to avoid. You know, some churches plan and design their services to attract non-Christians. This is the seeker-sensitive model. These churches change whatever they can about the church experience in order to make it appealing to the lost. And they take up 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. But here's the problem. No one seeks for God. True seeker-sensitive worship is focused on the true seeker, who is God himself. Jesus taught the woman at the well, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, on the other side, some churches plan and design their services to serve the preferences of their members. They focus exclusively on making church members happy and don't care at all what outsiders think or feel. But scripture is clear. We should be mindful of our assembled worship, being understandable to non-Christians in attendance. 1 Corinthians 14. The various elements should confront cultural idols and yet convey a hospitable and welcoming spirit. So what's the right path? The primary audience in worship is God, not man. See, both of those ditches ultimately are man-centered ways of worshiping. This is the right path. This is for our good because we were created to worship God. Our worship should be both thoroughly biblical and deeply joyful. So there ought to be two moods in our meetings. There ought to be a sense of gravity and a sense of gladness. If we come to church and the entire meeting is chipper, low-key, relaxed, we're missing a proper sense of gravity. He is, God is transcendent. He is exalted above the heavens. And all the corruptions in our crooked hearts and all the forces of our fallen world aim to silence God's supremacy and minimize his majesty. And yet, at the same time, God is imminent. He has drawn near to us in Christ. He has brought himself to us and us into his family. And so there ought to be gladness and, and gratitude along with the gravity. If our services are only solemn, high-key, serious, and there's not an atmosphere of joy and celebration, 
then we may not understand the wonder of the gospel. So corporate worship should foster a sense of the glory of God and our deep, heartfelt satisfaction in him. These are two wings on a plane. If one falls off, the whole thing crashes. It's only when we get this sense of gravity and gladness as primary that we can properly participate in worship. That is, secondarily, for the building up of the body of Christ. And thirdly, for the witness to the world. Exaltation, edification, and evangelism. All three in that order. And we gather to focus on glorifying God, building up the body, and we remain welcoming and comprehensible to our non-Christian guests. A third priority of our worship is that it ought to be Christ-centered. Jesus Christ is the Word, the image of God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. To know Christ is to know God in all his fullness. And therefore, worship of the true and living God should center on the person and work of Jesus. Jesus Christ is also our great high priest, our everlasting mediator, who has offered up himself as a perfect sacrifice to God. And because he's offered himself as the Lamb of God, and because he ever lives to make intercession for us, we are now able to come to God and offer him worship that is acceptable. No other man, method, or musical style can make us right before God. Christ's death and resurrection and ministry for us is our ground of confidence before our God. So Christ must be central. But you might ask, well, how should we order our worship? What role does was wisdom play in the structure of our services? Well, here our services too are arranged in such a way to reflect the gospel. Right? The sermon tells the gospel in words. The ordinances picture the gospel in symbols. And the order of service reflects the gospel in its structure. God's initiative to call us to worship. He's the one who takes, starts it off. A consideration of the character of God and our own sinfulness before him. The necessary sacrifice of Christ required for our forgiveness. The wonder of being redeemed. The joy of being free to live as his people. The privilege of being part of his mission to the world. All culminating in a declaration of God's glory as we are sent back out into the world with his blessing. Even the way, we, the order in which we worship together can reflect that good news of Christ. Fourth priority, spirit enabled. You know, in the parallel passage, which is Ephesians 5, 18 through 19, Paul writes, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Almost identical, except for one key difference. Did you catch it? How are we filled by the Spirit? It's when the Word of Christ dwells among us richly. The Spirit of God never works apart from or contrary to the Word of God. Word and Spirit always work together to enable our worship together. Friends, because of our sin, there is no inherent desire within man to worship God. On the contrary, man is by nature an idolater who exchanges the glory of God for lesser things. Left to our own, we have no hope of achieving God's design for us, of glorifying him and enjoying him forever. And yet, by God's matchless grace, the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to see the reality of our state before God, as well as the truth of Christ. We are born again for salvation, given the gift of the Holy Spirit to be indwelled by him, Whereas before we were enemies of God, God by his spirit causes us to love him 
and become his children. We're given new hearts that desire to worship God truly and duly. And so since the Spirit is directly responsible for the gift of proper response to the glory of God, all worship ought to be accompanied by earnest prayer that God, the Spirit, would grant his people to see God truly, understand him more deeply, and respond with high affections and appropriate actions. So church, pray for our worship together. Pray before we gather. Pray during our gathering. Pray after our gathering. Pray that God's Spirit would do God's work in God's way among us. Fifth would be one anothered. We've touched on this already. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. Plural. In all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Three brief implications of this one another dimension of our life together. Our worship should be accessible. The church is composed of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who together affirm the lordship of Jesus and the worship of the true and living God. And this redeemed people will always be composed of people from a wide variety of ages, a wide variety of ethnicities, a wide variety of backgrounds. And as such, the worship of the church ought to strive for the accessibility of all people. Truth, truth should not be watered down, but communicated clearly and without pretense. And brothers and sisters, the multifaceted nature of the church becomes even more difficult as it relates to music. Let's be honest, we're an opinionated congregation. No two people here have an identical musical background, not to mention musical capacity or training or tastes. And that for that reason, we should choose music which is generally accessible to people of all kinds. Our worship should be intergenerational. We know that the church is an ancient institution, worshiping the same God, declaring the same truth for two millennia. We ought to draw upon our rich history and reuse old elements for our services from gifted pastors, teachers, and musicians in the past. And yet the church is also a body filled with new life. Age shouldn't be a qualification for the use of a song. Truth and suitableness should be the standard. Brothers and sisters, there is one worship war that I am eager to see break out in our church. It would be older saints fighting to sing new songs that the younger saints love to sing. And it would be younger saints fighting to sing old hymns that will encourage the older saints as they go on to glory. And our worship should be participatory. As we wholeheartedly engage in worship, we edify those around us and they do the same for us. And so we want to be aware of, more aware of one another's singing than we are of any music that facilitates it. And then sixthly, heavenly minded. There's something about singing that appeals to the totality of our beings, right? It engages our minds, our wills, our affections, even our physical natures. And as we sing, we encourage each other to look up and to behold with the eye of faith a festal choir, the like of which you've never seen, cherubim and seraphim, angels and archangels, and the church triumphant that has gone on to the other side of glory. And we join with them in singing the praise of God. Isn't that what the book of Revelation seems to be telling us? That the life to come is one of glorious singing. Because there's a sense in which once you've tasted the gospel, once you've really tasted what it means to have your sins forgiven and wiped out by the blood of Jesus, once you've experienced what it means to be raised with Christ and to sit with him in the heavenly places, 
There's nothing else you can do but sing. You are compelled to praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, don't let the cheap seats of the football stadium outdo the joy of corporate singing in the gathered community of Christ's church. I wonder if a stranger would walk in. They haven't sung a hymn perhaps in their lives. I wonder what they would think if they would come and sit next to you and listen to us as we sung God's praises. Would they see that we are saved men and women? Would they be convicted by all and proclaim, God is really among you? Would they see that we are headed for an eternal city whose builder and maker is God? You see, our corporate gatherings together each Lord's Day are dress rehearsals for the great day of the Lord. The teaching we hear, the songs we sing, are preparing us for heaven. Listen to these words from J.C. Ryle. Good hymns are an immense blessing to the Church of Christ. I believe the last day alone will show the world the real amount of good they have done. They suit all, both rich and poor. There is an elevating, stirring, soothing, spiritualizing effect about a thoroughly good hymn, which nothing else can produce. It sticks in men's memories when texts are forgotten. It trains men for heaven, where praise is one of the principal occupations. Preaching and praying shall one day cease forever, but praise shall never die. The makers of good ballads are said to sway national opinion. The writers of good hymns in like manner are those who leave the deepest marks on the face of the church. And until we all sing together in that world to come, we sing as a pilgrim people. All of us sing hymns of yearning, melodies of exile, refrains that long for our heavenly home. Together as a church, we raise our voices in unison, knowing that one day the storms of darkness will end. Our singing anticipates something else, another time and another place. Our singing is not yet what it one day will be. It offers a foretaste of the day when all of God's family will gather around the throne. On that day, we will gather alongside our brave brothers and sisters in the new heaven and new earth where no power or principality will oppose us because King Jesus has won. The trumpet will sound, a new song will begin, and God's people from every tribe and tongue will lift up an anthem of praise that will echo into eternity. And so we sing because one day we will hear God sing to us. And do you know what he's going to be singing about? He's going to be singing about his love for us. You're going to hear that with your own ears one day. Zephaniah 3, verse 17, The Lord your God is among you. And he's looking to the time when God is going to do this in the future, in the great day of the Lord. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. You're going to hear God rejoice over you one day. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, as he's offered to you in the gospel, on the great day of the Lord, your God will rejoice and sing over you. Don't you want to sing to him in the meantime? So first, we need the peace of Christ to secure our unity. We need the word of Christ to shape our ministry. And then thirdly, we need the name of Christ to stimulate our doxology, to turn everything we do into this worship. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father 
through him. That's a comprehensive exhortation, isn't it? What does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? It's a life motivated for the glory of Christ. It means to do it for his sake, to do it for his honor, to do it for the renown of his name. That others looking at you, observing your actions, hearing your words might say, Jesus Christ is great. Look at what he's doing in that person's life, in that person's heart, through that person's service, and the way that they're serving, caring, giving, praying, loving. In other words, everything you do becomes worship. It's all for his honor. It's Romans 12, verse 1, isn't it? Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. You're offering your whole self, everything that you do, everything that you say, everything that you are, for the praise of the name of Jesus Christ. Christ must be so preeminent in our thinking that in every circumstance we ask ourselves, can I say this in Jesus' name? Can I be with those people in that place doing those things in Jesus' name? Can I do this for his sake as his representative, for his glory, to extend the honor of his name? Or will this dishonor him? Does this undermine the glory of his name? Would anyone knowing I was a Christian in that place, saying those things, participating in that behavior, think Jesus is not really worth following after all? In the church, we exist to make much of Christ so that everything we do might be for the praise of his name. But it's also a life moved to gratitude to God through Christ. Take every step in Jesus' name, he says, but be sure that the road you travel is paved with thanksgiving. Lace every word and every deed with thankfulness, with gratitude. Because gratitude is, again, the great engine of Christian obedience. Fan the flames of gratitude. Remember what the Lord has done for you. Remember the price that has been paid for you. Remember from whom you have been rescued and for whom you have been rescued. God himself. Remember the great blessings that are yours in Christ. Let the truth and the wonder of it all fan the flames of gratitude in your heart. Those who most feel their gratitude to God are those most willing to live their whole lives for his praise, who will long to display his glory to the ends of the earth. So, brothers and sisters, worship Christ, who is your life, in life together and all of life. As Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, taught us to sing, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. All my life, all of it given in glad worship in the name of the Lord Jesus. May that be our prayer and our song and the true commitment of our hearts as we live for him who has given himself to make us his for our joy and for his great glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we bless you for the gospel, that all that we are and have, we have as a gift of your grace, that flowing from the wounds of our Savior is grace upon grace. And so, as we rehearse again the wonder of it, we offer our thanks and our praise. And we ask that you would continue to help us stoke the fires of gratitude, that we may gladly yield our whole selves in new obedience. We long for your peace to be an effective ruler in our hearts. 
Forgive us when we've ignored its voice and failed to pursue reconciliation with one another. We long that your word should dwell in us richly, bearing much fruit to your glory. Help us to give ourselves with renewed commitment and resolve to the singing of your praise as we teach and admonish one another. And grant, Lord God, that at the name of Jesus, so precious, so worthy to be adored, that it might exercise a great control in all our words and all our deeds, that we may ask ourselves, may I do this for my Savior's glory? And if the answer is ever we may not, let us run from it. Grant, Lord God, that everything we do is for your praise. May our lives and our life together offer pleasing worship in your sight. So we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.